Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And on today's podcast, we have a real treat for you, Danny Fava. Danny is head of strategic development at InvestNet Inc. And there's probably nobody in our industry who has a better handle on the future of our industry than Danny. We're going to cover a wide range of uh, topics today. We're going to talk about Web3. We're going to talk in depth about embedded finance. Uh, We're going to talk about cryptocurrency. We're going to talk about DeFi, uh, non-fungible tokens. We're going to cover it all. And so if you want a glimpse into what our industry is going to look like in the next five or 10 years, you're really going to enjoy today's podcast. So without further ado, let's get to it. Let's talk the future and let's talk the future with Danny Fava. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, Danny, and thank you for joining us. Hey, James. So good to be here. You know, I remember reading back, I guess it was July of 2020, when you became head of strategic development at VestNet. I I got the headline, and it said that Danny had been chosen to cross-pollinate a semi-autonomous group of units and reap financial wellness. What does that pursuit look like on a daily basis? That's a lot of big words. I don't know who wrote that. (laughs) <laughs> I think it was, was RIA Biz or something like that. But I thought, wow. I, my, sure my first reaction is, man, that's a that's a tough ask. And my second reaction was, well, Danny's got this. Semi-autonomous. I I'm I'm not sure what they meant, but as the head of strategic development, uh, what I'm doing is really a lot of innovation inside of Investnet. And that's really um where I like to focus, James. I love to call myself an entrepreneur inside of a bigger company. So my personal risk appetite hasn't been high enough to join a real startup. But what I love doing is building things um, inside of a company and behaving like an entrepreneur, really stirring things up, having a vision, looking out into the future and getting a scrappy team together and making something happen. And what we're working on at InvestNet is really exciting. And so you describe innovation as functioning in chaos. I did. And I love that term. Yes. So it's got to be a little It's a really cool term. It's a (laughs) real, yes, it's got to be a little chaotic, right? So when you start off with innovation, what you're really starting off with is a problem and you're trying to solve that problem. And the first thing you have to do is validate that it's a problem worth solving But you go into it and you say, I don't have the answer yet. And so it's a little bit of chaos to try to find that answer. It's a lot of experimentation. It's a lot of throwing ideas at the wall to see if they'll stick. It's a lot of talking to a bunch of different people, whether those are technologists or consumers. And then you really sort of hone in on the solution. And that's where it sort of comes together and starts looking a little bit less like chaos. And then in order to get adoption, which I guess is the, is always the key with any innovation is to actually have people use it. Uh, do you have to rein in that chaos? What, how, how do you get from innovation to adoption? 
Adoption is actually easy. It's the easy part if you're solving a problem worth solving, right? So anyone will adopt a solution that solves a need for them, a need that they've been searching for. One of my favorite things inside of innovation when you're figuring out, do you have a real problem to solve, is finding a hacker. So what that means is people experience a problem so acutely that they've actually hacked their own solution. So think about when when mint.com first created, you know, the budgeting system that they have. They went out into the market, they saw a problem and what they found was a bunch of hackers. They found a bunch of people who were doing this on spreadsheets and on notepads. That's what you call a hacker. And so they decided, yes, this is a problem that's really worth solving from a technical perspective. Let's go do that. And that's when adoption becomes really easy because you've already identified that people are figuring out how to solve this problem using duct tape and bubble gum. So if I can give you an app or I can give you some smart technology that lives inside of your phone, that's easy to access, that's low cost, adoption is pretty easy at that point. And one of your big initiatives is embedded finance, right? Yes. Let's let's take a minute and, and describe for our listeners what is embedded finance? What what is it? Embedded finance is taking traditional financial services and embedding it in non-traditional places. It's taking things like saving, investing, insurance, financial planning, and putting it in places where you wouldn't expect to find it like inside of Uber, inside of Instacart, Walgreens, Walmart, Starbucks, the list goes on and on. It's really bringing traditional financial services a lot closer to the consumer by embedding it in places where they're already spending their time. And and, and when you say that, why is that so important going forward? What is it what is it that I makes think- that a game changer? So let's think about the problem that we're solving, right? And the problem is really, it's very hard to get into traditional financial services right now. We don't even realize how hard it is because we've come to accept it as part of our lives living inside of the industry. But let's say I'm a young person starting off. I've just created an income for myself and I'm trying to decide how do I save? How do I invest? First, I have to figure out what brokerage firm I need to go to. I don't even know what a brokerage firm is at this point in my life. Then when I figure out, hey, I'm going to go log on to Schwab or Fidelity, I'm going to open an account. Well, what kind of account? Well, I have no idea what kind of account. (laughs) Is it an individual account, an IRA? What does that mean? And as soon as I cross these very high hurdles, now I have to decide what should I invest in. And that's probably the most complex issue for me because I don't know anything about this industry. And you can see how something that we take for granted every day is a really high barrier to entry in this country in terms of getting exposed to investing, to saving, to financial planning. It's these. This is a really big problem, and it's a problem that a lot of financial services firms are just starting to realize and trying to solve. But I think embedded finance is really going to get this right because it's going to place easy, accessible solutions where consumers already have their money 
already have money coming in or passing through, and it's going to lower the barrier for entry for probably the more than half of Americans who don't own stock today, it's going to lower those barriers of entry significantly. Actually, we've already seen some of this start happening in the crypto space. And I think crypto may have partially led the industry into embedded finance. So some of the first places where you could buy Bitcoin and and Ethereum were on PayPal and on Cash App, places that I've already got on my phone. I've already, I already know how to deposit money into PayPal. It's very easy. And all of a sudden I could flip a switch and buy crypto and the adoption. So back to your question about adoption was, you know, an overnight success because it was solving a problem and the ease of accessibility was right there. So you think about how crypto, how PayPal and Cash App turned on crypto and made it such an astounding success. Now think about how we can turn on investing and saving and planning in a similar way across consumer apps that you're using every day. And then at that, is it a point in time education too, in terms of the financial solutions where you're giving that information to the consumer at just the right time that, you know, where they're actually going to really hear it and, and act on it? I I think that's exactly right. It's the point in time where, hey, you're perhaps collecting an income for some service that you're providing. Maybe it's Uber driving. Maybe it's something that, you know, you're selling in the eBay or the Etsy marketplace and that's coming in through PayPal. As soon as that money is hitting your account, you're exactly right. The time is perfect for me to introduce you to investing or to saving and planning, right? What are you going to do with that income? You're now on a financial wellness journey, and I'm going to present to you these solutions at the right time in a very accessible place and in a manner that's really easy to digest. If you remember, James, a few years back, our industry was talking a lot about user experience. And they were using the Amazon example. And they were saying, you know, Amazon's making it so easy to buy anything, right? The experience has changed. The consumer expectation has changed. And then we were saying like advisor, financial advisors really have to understand this. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense, right? No one at that point a few years ago was really able to connect those dots and to tell us, hey, how does Amazon really change the consumer expectation and what do we in the financial services space have to do to meet that expectation? Now it's clear with embedded finance that, oh, wow, you can actually invest at the point of purchase. You can make a really sleek, easy experience like PayPal has done, like Cash App has done, when it comes to traditional financial services. You've got banking services like Chime that have come in and created an easy, fun experience for people to interact with their paychecks and their banking services. Now it's starting to become clear what we meant a couple of years ago when we were talking about Amazon has changed the user experience. This is going to bleed into financial services. I think we're having that aha moment 
that says, oh yeah, this this is what we meant by that. And, and here we go. We're kind of hitting a tipping point where uh, financial services enters that that same experience. Yeah, because there is a lot of areas where financial services overlap with, you know, all of our daily decisions. I mean, whether it's budgeting or healthcare or, you know, or what have you. So the the ability to get that, I mean, the the term financial wellness is so interesting to me because I, I think it's such a subjective term for the individual. I mean, when I was growing up around our house, financial wellness meant that, you know, we were able to pay the light bill at the end of the month. I mean, there was no... We, we didn't really have a investing goals or anything like that. It was the goal was simply to make it to Friday. And, and we always did. I mean, we weren't uh, impoverished by any stretch of the imagination, but, but our reality was far different from the reality of the clients that I have where they may be very financially well off, but in the concept of financial wellness, they still have some, some places to go. So do you, do you feel like the solutions that are coming along, are they, are they meant mainly to provide access to those people who just haven't had access to the system before? Or are there parts of this that can actually be used to help benefit people who have, you know, frankly benefited greatly from the system as it exists, but still haven't found their own financial wellness. Maybe they haven't found their own significance with their money. Yeah. And, I think the answer is that it's really both. And I think both of those communities, every level of wealth will engage with embedded finance in a different way. But something that you said when you were just talking triggered a thought in my mind that I kind of want to explore and I want to see what you think of it. I think financial wellness is tied to the micro moments in your life. So you know, we talk a lot about next best action and what do I do with my next dollar? Well, that sort of happens in these micro moments, right? So I just got paid. I've got to spend. I've got to make a decision on a subscription that I have. I've got to decide what to invest. I've got to decide all of these things that are happening in these micro moments throughout my life. I think financial wellness is being able to make the best decision at each one of those micro moments and having solutions that help us do that, I think really lives inside of embedded finance. And I think having a solution to help you make the best decision in each one of those micro moments is what leads you to financial wellness, right? So it's a matter of taking the the complexity of life and the complexity of all of these decisions that we have to make and bringing them all together and having this sort of map of here's the next best thing that you can do with those dollars. And when I say it applies to really everyone, there's so much more that each person can be doing with each dollar that they have, whether you have $10 left over at the end of your paycheck, or you've got you know, $100,000 sort of sitting in the side as your emergency savings or as your as your liquid fund. There's something better that I would say most people could be doing with those extra dollars. What is that better thing? And how do we make that next best action so easily accessible that there's no reason not to do it, right? 
that's the that's really where embedded finance becomes a reality and financial wellness becomes a reality is when we can when we can solve all of those problems so when it becomes not only the trigger but also you know also kind of that indicator of when that next step is yes and the next step is right there you don't have to go anywhere for it right like that's the that's the thing there's got to be a way to connect all of your rewards points all of your credit card um, cash back, all of your leftover change, all of your incremental sort of, here's the money you didn't spend for the month. When we can take all of that and we can put it into the next best thing you can do with those dollars in those micro moments, that's when you truly can achieve financial wellness. And that applies to everyone from any any level of wealth. It can even apply, of course, to um, no wealth, right? So, so folks who are in debt, there's got to be a way to have a financial wellness type of application that helps them decide what I, where do I put this next dollar? What's going to help me in the most, the most to get out of debt? What kind of debt should I take on? And that's where, you know, embedded finance is making access right now so easy that I'm actually a little bit concerned, at least in one area. Um, I think the there's a trend right now in the buy now, pay later space where embedded finance has made it very easy to take on debt in order to make a purchase. So buy now, pay later is how, you know, companies like Affirm, Klarna, Afterpay, they all facilitate point of purchase lending. Right. So there's a very quick way at checkout to spread your payments across, you know, um, four payments or more. But there is no real easy way for me yet to see all of the debt that I've taken on in one place and to decide, is this the right thing for me to do in this moment? How will this decision that I'm about to make? When I click on that buy now, pay later button, how is that decision going to impact the rest of my finances? How is that decision going to impact my ability to pay the light, the electric bill at the end of the month? That's really the dream that I have is to be able to answer all of those questions for every person inside of every micro moment. Um, And that's, again, not to beat on on the word, but that's in my mind, where we can really achieve true financial wellness. And so that's really about integration. It's about, I'm going to make that decision. And as I'm making that decision, something comes up and reminds me, wait a minute, you actually have four other, you, you have four other liabilities that you've, that you've put together here in the last month. And in aggregate, this doesn't make nearly as much sense as it does individually. Exactly. So almost, almost as if you had a financial advisor kind of with you, you know, in that moment. And, and, and the, the secret of our industry is we just can't help as many people as that need to be helped. So this embedded finance concept is, is terrific, I think, because the, the more financial wellness we have in the country, the better off we all are. 
Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a for for the financial advice industry, it's a pipeline issue, right? If we can keep more people financially well and help people make decisions in those micro moments that will lead them or leave them with a better chance of growing wealth over time, that becomes the funnel, that becomes the pipeline of tomorrow's advisor clients, right? We all win. We all win if we can if we can bring more people to the table and lower the barriers of entry, increase the access to these tools, we all win in the long run. I think that's exactly right. And so as you, as you mentioned earlier, you consult with a lot of startups and a lot of them are working on platforms and, and solutions that increase the access and education for underserved communities. Yes. Do you see a landscape developing that's going to allow those companies to pursue those goals, which are lofty, but also make a profit, which is you know, what their investors are going to want to see as, you know, investors in those entities. Yeah, it's that, that's always the, the trick, right? How do we sustain growth in these solutions um, and, and become profitable? And I absolutely think it's possible. And I think it's all a matter of technology and how we can scale that technology um, and how we can um, participate in economics that are aligned with, our customers' financial wellness. So let's take, for example, something that we're working on at InvestNet. Um, I call it embedded savings. Embedded savings is a solution that it's almost like it's almost like digital layaway, right? It's basically okay. a way instead of borrowing at point of purchase, can we integrate savings into point of purchase? So imagine you've got a goal to buy a Tesla, you've got a goal to buy a Peloton, or even you know have a do a kitchen renovation. Can you start saving at point of purchase? At can you start a savings account right on Home Depot or right on Peloton or through some browser plugin? And if you can start saving there, that's a benefit to you. And if we can scale that and we can put that in front of every person who needs to save, and we get you know, millions of customers, there's no way that solution can, can't be profitable, right? Because you think about all of the players there, whether it's um, collecting yield on cash or whether the embedder themselves is participating in the economics. And the end solution is a customer who's able to save toward their goal rather than to, um, rather than to take on more debt at that point of purchase. That's an elegant solution where everybody wins. Everybody in the picture wins. Home Depot wins because they're helping a customer facilitate um, a purchase that they want to make in the future. Uh, InvestNet wins being the technology provider of this solution. And the consumer wins for having a place where savings becomes easy, becomes accessible, and becomes kind of goal-oriented, right, based on something they want to do. And if everybody wins, I'm going to go way back to the question where you asked in the first place, what about adoption? How do you get people to adopt? This is a, this is a very an easy, elegant solution that um, will we'll likely have no, no, no problem with uh, adoption. So when each one of those constituencies ask what's in it for me and they get the answer, that's what leads to adoption. Exactly. Yep. Everybody wins. Well, this would be really cool if we went, uh, you know, all the way back to layaway because that was when I was 
when I was growing up, my grandmother would take me from store to store making $10 payments. Uh, And that was, that was, I mean, we didn't, she didn't operate via credit card or anything like that. It was, uh, it was just a little bit here or there, you know? So this is how innovation works, James. And what I love about it is that I remember layaway. Of course, I made the same trip with, with my parents to make those $10 payments and you didn't get your good delivered until you finished those payments, but you knew that the store is holding that good for you and you'd go and make those payments in physical form. Here's a problem, right? The problem is is kind of twofold in my opinion. One, nobody has facilitated digital layaway. So it's virtually impossible to create a scenario online where you are doing that same activity. We can, not only can we facilitate it online, we can automate those $10 payments. So you don't even have to go remember to go in and make them, right? So that can absolutely happen. And it combats the, um, you know, the that consumers are taking on too much debt. And you know what? It pr- turns out research shows millennials specifically don't like to take on debt. So there's so many problems that are being solved in that equation. And then, so now we say, yeah, we've got a problem worth solving. Let's go ahead and build this tech solution that can scale. Um, that's sort of where where the, the, the chaos kind of stops. And then you really focus in on a solution that you're going to build. Um, and that's that's exactly what I'm doing over here at InvestNet. Well, cool. And you're the essence of an early adopter. So when you get it, when a new app comes on the line or it comes, comes out, you just download it immediately and just start playing with it, right? Heck yes. Oh my gosh. I have so many, <laughs> so many apps and I, I, yeah, absolutely. So what are you trying to determine when you do that? When you have your first interaction with an app, what's your mental checklist that says this works or this doesn't? Um, that's a really good, I've actually never thought about it. And so I'm going to answer kind of on the fly. I really do it from a place of just sheer curiosity and trying to learn what other people are doing. But, um, I think experience is, is definitely one, right. And has this experience won me over so much so that I'm willing to come back? Um, Again, is this solving a problem for me or is this something that I'm already that I've already got figured out or that I really don't have time and you know in my life for? Is this solution uh, making it easy for me to interact? Um, and sort of, you know, what's the what's the hook? What's the hook that's gonna make me come back? So all of those things are sort of questions in my mind. I take it a little bit further, of course, and I'm always trying to figure out how they're doing things behind the scene. Um, what's the cost, you know, how, what's the customer support, where is this going to lead, how many people are going to adopt this. So I sort I'm interacting with apps probably on a different level than, than most people. Um, I am really, really impressed with a lot of apps that are coming out right now that are investment focused. And there's a lot that's happened in our industry that has sort of fueled the success of these investment apps. And some of those things are, number one, um, digital custodians. So we've got a a few custodians that have come out um, with really compelling integrations that solve a lot of our old school problems. For example, 
opening an account, digital onboarding, um, being able to execute trades immediately and in fractional shares. So there's players like Apex and Drive Wealth that are out there really succeeding on those things. And a lot of these apps then are built on top of that digital technology. A lot of these investment apps are built on top of that digital technology that those um, custody players are enabling. So I'm thinking about that when I download an investment app and I start using it as sort of like how these digital custodians are solving some of those um, traditional problems that we have in our space. The API communication that these apps have um, behind the scenes where everything's happening in real time. We're asking questions of the interface and we're getting immediate answers, right? I don't have to wait until my quarterly report to see my performance and to play around with my performance. I can do that on a daily basis, on the fly. Um, knowing that these things are possible also fuels the innovation question insofar as, you know, the technology has created these capabilities for us, what else can we do with that? What else can we go and build? What other problems can we solve? Because the technology has moved so far and so fast to where it is now. And I guess that kind of leads us to, you talk frequently about future-proofing the RIA industry. Uh, for those who don't know what that is, registered investment advisor industry or just the wealth management industry as a whole. What does that blueprint look like? How do, how do we future-proof our practices? Um, I think adoption and experimentation is number one. I think being open-minded is number two. Um, I really see the industry moving in sort of a different way than, than others might. I see a major decentralization of wealth happening because of all of these access points. So as I'm talking and building, right, I'm building even more access points. But as right. I'm talking and, and adopting these apps, I'm realizing the next generation, the generation that's starting to invest right now, their wealth is not going to be centralized. It is not going to be on one platform. It is no... I seriously doubt that anybody is going to want to consolidate their wealth to one or two central places. So the next generation of wealth is going to come to financial advisors with their wealth spread out in so many different places, right? They have, they're going to be building wealth, not only on many different apps, they're going to be building wealth in different different um, forms. It's not just U.S. equities and U.S. dollars. It is now cryptocurrency. It's DeFi. It's happening everywhere. So when a client comes to you and says, James, I've got a million dollars in wealth and that million dollars is spread out over 18 different apps. Are you going to say to that customer, well, just sign this advisory agreement and move all of your assets to X? <laughs> And, and then, you know, expect that that's, that's going to happen. So no, I, I don't think that that will happen. I think the, the industry and the technology in the future looks very, very different. And that's why at InvestNet, we think about this as an ecosystem. We think about our technology as an ecosystem with many different points of integration. 
we will bring it all together for the financial advisor so that the financial advisor can view and control those assets where they are, right? So that's kind of what I think about when I when I think future of wealth management, future of financial services, future proofing the industry. What is the, what does the industry even look like in five to ten years? Well, it looks very decentralized. And, and it, would, it would seem to be that be it'd be hard to even have a central financial planner in that in that scenario. Yes. You'd almost need a group of financial advisors working together. Perhaps. You know, that are familiar with all those different points of entry <laughs> and access points, right? Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps. Or the the dream is to make the financial advisor the hero and that the financial advisor is the one who can bring it all together and make sense of it. Even though that wealth may have been accumulated in 18 different places and you know, the customer is not going to aggregate their wealth into one place or consolidate their wealth into one place. InvestNet really wants to make the advisor the superhero. And I think the superpower of an advisor in the future is the ability to bring it all together, to make sense of it, to be able to tell that client what's the next place they can put, what's the next best place they can put their next dollar and that place does not have to be a centralized view. It can be, you know, anywhere. And the advisor is always going to be able to bring it together and make sense of this decentralized world that we live in. Um, that's my, that's kind of my view of the future of how an advisor needs to work with their clients. Um, so that's, that's a view of a client coming to an advisor that already has found financial wellness in, per, per, in, in perhaps, respect, I, right? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Like like everything else, they they have so many things going on, and you know now they've got families. Now they've got a career that's you know more demanding than it was. You know when they developed three of these access points, and at yes. some point it just it just gets tough to manage, right? Yes, yes, yep. There's a lot of automation in there, a lot of integration, a lot of bringing it all together, um, and the technology will change over time, but but. Yeah, I mean the advisor becomes the hero who can who can make sense of it all. So so where does crypto and DeFi fit into the future landscape of our industry? Is it is it a standalone utility or is it the linchpin that brings all this together? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, um right now I'm I'm viewing cryptocurrency as um an asset class and as as kind of a um a core asset class that, that really cannot be ignored by by financial advisors. Um, I think it stays that way for a while, but what's sort of happening in the DeFi space is that all of our traditional financial services are now becoming available on the blockchain, and that's big, right? So that means when we need to borrow or if we want to lend and generate income or you know, do any number of other fin traditional financial services functions, we can now do that on the blockchain without an intermediary. And I don't think people understand yet how powerful that is and how much that changes the landscape. And so, you know, while I view investing in crypto as an asset class, um, you know, potentially speculative, potentially high growth asset class, 
I view DeFi as something a little bit different that actually does impact the future of um, financial services and how certain things are delivered. So I think um, DeFi um, becomes sort of the linchpin. DeFi really changes the way we deliver financial services and how we interact. So your argument would be that once, once you transact on the blockchain, you have that aha moment. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. It's, it's really, you have to do it to, to really know what I mean. And I think the, these two things kind of happened to me in the, in the same week, I believe I had to um, move some assets out of a retirement account to make my first investment in private equity, which was exciting and unbelievably frustrating. Thank you. (laughs) Unbelievably frustrating that, um, I don't think the money's even moved yet. Like I think I started this process a month ago and it's it's not invested where it needs to be. That was one experience. During that time, I transferred some ETH out of uh, my Gemini, out of Gemini onto my MetaMask wallet and purchased a um, a DeFi index, a, a group of tokens. And that entire process took me about five minutes. And you can see... And so for people who aren't aren't familiar with that, so you had Ethereum on Gemini, which is, a, I guess, a digital equivalent of a, I don't want to say a Schwab, but a, a digital yeah, equivalent. Yeah, that's fine of, to say, I think. Yeah, they're a custodian. a custodian and an exchange. Yeah, yeah. Or they, they're facilitating transactions much in the way that Schwab would for U.S. equities. That's and, fair. And you, and you move that Ethereum onto your private wallet. Yep, that's right. I use MetaMask as my private wallet. Yes. And then once you did that, that allowed you to do what was the next step? Purchase um, a DeFi index, which is you know a, a group of of um, tokens basically that are focused on doing a specific thing in the DeFi industry. Sure. And so you did that through directly through uh, the MetaMask wallet, or did you have to go to another? Did you have directly, to to directly through the MetaMask wallet into um, a DeFi community called the DeFi Index Coop. And so that's where you did it directly on the blockchain. Yep, that's right. Oh, cool. Okay. It was so, so cool. It was so cool. I mean, it's like you just refresh and the money has moved and the purchase has been made and executed. And now you own, you know, this group of, of DeFi tokens and it is instant. And there is no intermediary and it doesn't, there's, <laughs> there's no like failure. There's no wire. There is no phone number to call it, it, it. There's no form to fill out. It's really, really powerful and it's not mature yet. Or some, some might say that it is mature, but it's, you know, it's not mature in that we know all of the, you know, um, we know all of the, points of, of failure. We know all of the, all of the compliance overhead. We don't, there's a lot of unknowns, but when you experience the power and the, like just the instant nature and the, the way that it works, you do really have an aha moment and say, wait a second, why do we wire money from um, an IRA into another trust to buy a private equity to buy private equity when these firms can really just uh, create 
uh, tokens on the blockchain and and do much of the same thing that they're they're doing um, in DeFi. So you can see it. You'll have an aha moment if you kind of go through these steps, and you'll realize that the the industry is going to change. So let's let's step back a little bit from uh, from the aha moment here. Let's talk Web three for just a just a second. Sure. That's yeah. that's kind of you know that's kind of all the rage. Uh, when I think of Web three, I generally think of it through the prism of some kind of VR headset allowing me to port <laughs> into a virtual world. Uh, and I know that's a very uh, simplistic view of Web three. What does Web three mean to you? <laughs> so Web three is the internet on the blockchain, right? So what does that like? What does that mean? Like, how do you explain that? Why would that happen? And I I like to use um, the example of NFTs to explain why Web3 is important and, and really like why we need it, so to speak, or why it and will translate happen. for the masses again, that's non-fungible tokens. <laughs> yes. Non-fungible tokens are like the digital art they, like, that, um, you know, is all the craze. Uh, people have been making millions of dollars, thousands of <laughs> thousand percent returns on their investments. It's um, it's still very speculative, but um, I want to I want to try to relate Web three in context of NFTs. So okay. the the internet as it stands, right? I could make a meme, and the meme could become the most popular meme ever. You know, it could be the 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 um, biggest meme of 2022. And no one would know that I created it. I would not get paid for it. I do not have rights to it. No one knows that I created it. It can't really be traced back to me. And that sucks as a creator. That sucks, <laughs> right? So in when I think about NFTs, let's say the only way to share that meme was on Web3 or on the blockchain. That NFT or that meme is now stamped with my name and it is you you cannot you cannot change that stamp you cannot change ownership on the blockchain it's immutable so now i create a meme on web3 and i it starts getting shared across web3 everyone that sees that meme puts their own stamp on it i've accepted it i've used it i've passed it on um, you know, exponentially throughout the entire internet, by the time it gets to the, you know, hundredth million sh share of, you know, sharing across the platform, I can still go back and see who created that meme. Now, when you think about it in that term, in those terms, it starts to make sense why these use cases are so important on the internet for creators, for sharing, because I can see who created it and I can see everybody's hands that it passed through. Now, being a meme creator is like just one small example of, you know, the power of Web3 or why these things are important because it's immutable, it's trackable, and I don't need an intermediary to do that for me. It happens organically on the blockchain. Does that make sense? That was like the first time well, sure. I tried it, to explain it, it out is loud. Is it more like a, if we were thinking about it as a digital copyright, but it's not really a copyright in the sense that 
A copyright would be for a mini intermediary. Right. <laughs> it, but it does give you credit for your work. Yes. Yes. And, and prevents other people from taking credit for it. Yes. Yep. Exactly. That's right. And you can think of a hundred different use cases where that's important. Oh, yeah. Thousands. I mean, so it, it, it would be the equivalent is, you know, the master artist of the early 19th century or 18th century didn't have the ability to sign their artwork. You know, I, or, I think about this a lot because I've heard a lot of people, you know, say that digital art NFTs are, you know, it's ridiculous. Why would we want to own, buy an original digital piece of art? And then I go to this, your, the point that you're making, it's also a little bit weird to me, James, that some people want to own a physical original piece of art that also doesn't make sense to me and people, you know, in, in our generation. So I think there's, there's something there where, you know, the physical pieces of art are now have now transitioned or the interest in ownership is now transitioning to digital pieces of art. And that's how, that's how we consume art now for the most part. So it does make a lot of sense why NFTs would be um, selling for the kinds of um, increased valuations that they are. Yeah, I guess the one the one area that I a question, I, I don't really have the answer to it, is that it, it seems like the value of these things is most most representative right on their issue. Uh, whereas maybe a, a work of art in the past might have had no value for a century, or for a century uh, until some event gave it value. So it you know, acquired value over time. I could see how in your meme concept, uh, you know, once a hundred million people have shared it, it's going to, you know, it's going to start declining in, in popularity because there's going to be a new meme that, you know, <laughs> hasn't been shared by a hundred million people yet. So, uh, that's the one area where it, it seems like if there's a monetization aspect of it, or if there's a way for for creators to actually monetize their talent, it would come maybe in shorter spurts. But I, I don't even know that if that's the correct way to look at it. I don't know either. This is such an interesting conversation because as you're as you're saying that, I'm thinking. I don't know. Is that true? Did the Mona Lisa become more popular after more people had seen it or after, right? So I, I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure how it plays out. I think the NFTs right now are selling for such an increased valuation because people who can see the power of NFTs and who, who can see the power of Web3 are looking at these as the first issue. Right. So imagine owning a piece of if if the if NFTs and Web3 becomes what some people believe it can, it, it can become. Imagine owning the imagine owning the first piece of signed physical art. Imagine owning like that's the that's the correlation. That's why NFTs are so popular right now. Imagine owning the first ever NBA NFT. If NFTs become what some people think they can become, what will the very first one of its kind created be worth? And that's where they're—that's why the valuations of the ones that are coming out now are so are so high. And then, 
the idea that those are stored on the blockchain and it's immutable, it can't be, it can't be forged, it can't be fixed such that if indeed I was the first top shot purchaser uh, or if I, if I did pay a million dollars for that NFT and everybody said, well, that's just crazy. I at least have the guarantee that my name or my handle or my signature is on that purchase that's uh, right. until such time as somebody wants to come and exchange that on the blockchain from me. Correct. Correct. That's right. And do you think people actually understand that? Not most. No, I don't think most people do understand it. I mean, it, it's, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I can picture its value and I know how it works. I'm not sure I fully understand what it can become and all of the different use cases. So I, I definitely don't think people understand. Um, I don't think people understood, you know, crypto when, when Bitcoin was below a dollar. So <laughs> It's uh, it's all evolving. You no, know, no. If we did, we've all bought a lot more of it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let's change this a little bit to personal for just a second. So, so dinner time is actually a digital free zone at your house. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It really is, and it works really well now that we moved into a two hundred and twenty year old um, farmhouse that's been re- it's been renovated to really be period. So the dining room is, it looks like you've just stepped into um, a 19th century home and it's, it's really Ah. incredible. And so we don't, we, so it makes it easier to leave your phone in the basket, huh? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. Dinner time. Is that that really super valuable time for you? Because is that the only time you're really digitally off? It is. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to say that it really, it really is. I am very digitally connected. I, I even prefer to um, scroll on my phone over watching, watching a TV series. I don't really, I don't have cable anymore. I don't really watch TV. I'm, I'm very digitally connected and dinner time is the only time I, I <laughs> won't, I won't be on my phone or my computer. And then you, you, you do something at, at dinner called high point, low point. <laughs> Yep. Oh, this is a great way to get your kids to tell you something about their day other than to say it was good. <laughs> yeah, I've, so, I've heard a high point, but I, I've never heard the low point aspect come come out of it. What yeah. when did how did that get started? Um, I don't I don't remember. I think somebody suggested it at, you know, at some point in my life. I I stole I stole someone else's idea. I, I didn't make this one up. Um it, it's just high point, low point, really easy way to go around the table and say, what was the best part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? And it's a, it's a nice way to keep perspective, right? Um, every day, every day is important. Every day is a gift. And telling, t- sharing your high point and your low point really gives you perspective about, about your day and what you've accomplished. And like I said, it's a good way to get get your teenagers if you have them to, to say something they have to come up with something <laughs> well and I, I imagine it's like everything else there's some dinners that are more you know where, where the topics are, are more meaningful than others but it's kind of a kind of a neat way to have that out there as a do you find yourself on the way home 
thinking about what that high point and low point of the day was? I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. You'll probably make it to my high point today, James. I'm not going to oh, lie. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, that's cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So what excites you the most about the future of finance? What um, what, ac- what just makes you wake up and want to kick ass every day? I love the idea. I love where we are right now as an industry in terms of, you know, we come from a place where the most successful firm was the one who could create the most complex and hard to access product. That's where we came from. Where we are now is that whoever figures out access, whoever figures out simplicity, whoever can reach the most people, that's the firm that's going to be successful. And I get so excited about that. Um, given my my background, my heritage, knowing that 71% of Hispanic adults in this country don't own stock, what gets me really energized every day is being able to solve that problem, being able to create solutions that are easy to access, low barriers, simple. I I love that. I love the prospect of, of really changing um, someone's financial health for the better. Yeah, because when you take something that's, you know, when I was growing up, we never talked about investments. That would that would have just been laughable. We we just would never have done it. We we talked about the lottery a lot, but you know, <laughs> never never actual investments. Uh, but you know, of course, because of what I've done in my career and and where our family is now, I mean, my children talk about investments all the time, and their expectation is that they will be investors. And so I think when you when you can take financial wellness or access or whatever you want to term it, and you can get that first generation to do something that the last generation wasn't able to do, regardless of their background, regardless of all the other stuff, when they make that first blockchain transaction, when they buy that first stock, when they do those first things, and it becomes mainstream to them, they're going to pass that on to their children and their friends. And I think to us as a, as an industry, that's our challenge. Yep. It is. And we're, I think we're getting better at it. We know it, we accept it and we're moving, we're moving the ball forward. I, I think there's, there's plenty of problems to solve, but there's a lot of reasons to, to celebrate and be sort of proud of where, where we are and and where we're going. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, if you're excited, Danny, I'm excited. And thank you so much for joining us today. It was, uh, it was great to spend a few minutes with you and uh, love what you're doing. And uh, I think what you're doing is going to have a lot of impact for just generations to come. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. Love what you're doing too. I love the podcast. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you. I hope I do make the high point tonight at the dinner table. That, that would be great. <laughs> You'll have to you'll have to shoot me a text and let me know if that actually happened. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Deal. All right. Thank you. And that's a wrap on our conversation with the future uh, with Danny Fava. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you guys really enjoyed the podcast. I know there's a lot of things that we talked about that, uh, you know, they come up in the media all the time. Uh, media will refer to Web3 and and decentralized finance and NFTs and all these things. And, and we hope that we really kind of gave you a little bit more background into those things and a little bit more of a, 
of an idea of what they really are and what their role might be in the future. So if you enjoyed it today, I, I hope you did. If you did, please uh, rate us, uh, subscribe to us. You can pretty much listen to us on any of the platforms that you might be listening to podcasts today. Uh, you can also check us out uh, and check out any of our previous episodes via our website uh, at SiliconHillsWealth.com. And again, we thank you so much for listening and being a part of what we're doing. Uh, our goal is just simply to kind of bring the future to you before it happens. Uh, and I think that's what we did here today. So thank you so much for listening. And as we always say, we can only do our best work when you are here to listen. Thank you.